title of my sermon is Doing Life Together is Not an Option. If you have uh, your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in the book of Hebrews for most of our time. And uh, the reason I believe God put this on my heart to, to preach to you guys, it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Um, those of you know, um, when I was in youth ministry for over 10 years, a lot of what we did, the cornerstone of a lot of what we did, especially when we became crew 24 was because of this verse, Hebrews 10, 24. Um, and so I believe that God is wanting to share some things with you guys through me today. So Hebrews 10, 22 through 25, it says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as in, as is the manner of some, but instead exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Let me just give you one more version of this. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. Let's do it. Full of belief. Confident that we're presentable inside and out. Let's keep a firm grip on the promises that keep us going. He always keeps his word. Let's see how inventive we can be in encouraging love and helping out. Not avoiding worshiping together as some do, but spurring each other on. So as especially as we see that big day approaching. I want to leave, I want to give you five exhortations today to help us reconcile with our creator. The first one is let us draw near to God. If you have your, uh, your, your sheet, that'd be the first one to write in. And there's four conditions in drawing near to God. God calls us to have number one, a sincere heart. The people of Israel drew near to God with their mouth. They honored them with their lips, but their heart was often far from him. That's what it said in the book of Matthew 15, eight. See, our approach, friends, should be with utter sincerity, an undivided allegiance in our inner being. Sincerity. And second, a full assurance of faith. Ephesians 3.12 reminds us that we draw near with confidence in the promises of God and with firm conviction that we will have a gracious reception into his presence. It's a faith that knows no hesitation in trusting and following Christ. Isn't that reassuring? The next two get a little bit more, uh, a little bit more spiritual in the sense they, they take a little bit more of delving into, but the third thing it says that we need to do conditions for giving God our best and drawing near to him is we need to have our hearts sprinkled from a guilty conscience. See, when we trust Christ, we see how important the value of his blood is. Figuratively speaking, we sprinkle our hearts with it, right? Just like the Israelites sprinkled their doors with the blood of the Passover lamb. Exodus 12, seven reminds us of that. There needs to be a total freedom from the sense of our guilt based on the one and only sacrifice of Christ. So if a sincere heart and full assurance of faith and our hearts sprinkled from a guilty conscience isn't enough, there's one more condition that he asks for drawing near to God. And that's that our bodies be washed with pure water. Our bodies represent our lives and the pure water might refer to the word of God or the Holy Spirit. But nonetheless, the Holy Spirit uses the word to cleanse our lives from daily refinement. Excuse me, daily defilement. We are cleansed once and for all from the guilt of sin by the death of Christ. Let me say that again. We are cleansed once and for all 
from the guilt of sin by the death of Jesus Christ. But yet we need to be cleansed daily. It's a sanctification, right? From the defilement of sin by the Holy Spirit through the word. See, very likely those last two conditions are talking that our hearts are sprinkled and our bodies are washed. They're alluding to Christian baptism and the cleansing of our sin. So if I was to just, if I was to just wrap that up in four simple words for you guys, if I was speaking on a simpler thing, I would say that easier put, the S stands for sincerity. This is in your note sheet. The A stands for assurance. How important is that to know that we have full assurance? Assurance of faith. The, the third one is salvation. It's, and the fourth one would be sanctification. Sanctification. Our bodies are washed with pure water. So see, he gives us five exhortations. And the first one, as I said, is let us draw near to God. But the second one that he gives us is let us hold unswervingly to the hope. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope. Hopefully you can write all that in the blank. I tried to make them longer last night. I was like, oh, I think they're, they, they write bigger than me. Um, and there's a handful of promises of hope. Isn't, isn't what we as Christians like rely on every day is hope in Christ? The hope in us, right, is Jesus Christ. I love that word hope. And there's some other verses that tell us of God's promises of hope. See, nothing must be allowed to turn us from the hope that we have in Christ. In fact, the New King James Version that we read says, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. That's that the believer's confident expectation of the future. Don't let anything wrench your hope from your hands. Hold on to it. I know that people, you hear the phrase people say, don't allow Satan to steal our joy. Well, I'm asking us today to ponder the idea that, that Satan wouldn't steal our hope. Our hope comes from the Lord. How do we do that? How do we not allow things to wrench our hope? We live as hope-filled people in a hopeless world. We live as hope-filled people in a hopeless world. See, the answer lies in many passages in the Bible. He who promised is faithful. As a child of God, your hope doesn't rest on your resourcefulness, but your hope indeed rests on God's faithfulness. I love that. As a child, your hope doesn't rest on your resourcefulness, how much you can get or how much you can make out of it or how much you can do with your life, but instead it solely relies on God's faithfulness. First Timothy tells us, he who is faithless, God still remains faithful to Maybe you've seen some of these, these promises before. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he will forgive our many sins. In Jeremiah 31, 34, it summarizes that our sins that he's forgiven are sins that he's forgotten. Isn't that encouraging to know that the sins that we do on a repeatedly daily, weekly basis, God has forgotten of them. I tell my kids in class every year we start with understanding what sin is and how it originated. And we learn that sin, God doesn't hold on to. In fact, he puts it behind his back. He throws it as far as the east is from the west. He throws it in the depths of the ocean. He doesn't remember it. That's not what he's about. He's not a God of bringing back up our past mistakes and our sins. 
but instead sins that he's forgiven our sins that he's forgotten. John three sixteen, we all know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This one's simple. And I remember Neil saying this all the time when he was up in the pulpit. Believe in Jesus and you too can have eternal life. There's no conditions. John 10, 28 says, once we receive the gift of eternal life, no one can steal it. This is talking about uh, um, God being the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd in our life. He's talking about that even the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion cannot snatch the sheep out of God's hand. And as I've already prayed this today several times, and God reminds me, especially when we're down and there's trials and there's sickness and there's pain in our life, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 reminds us that when we are weak, what? He is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me, right? It's so simple. In the, in the, in the, in the, in the song that we learned all as kids, Jesus loves me. They are weak, but he is strong. See, God's promises will never fail. No one who trusts in him will ever be disappointed. Well, conditionally, we're disappointed all the time, aren't we? But see, if we really understood God's plan in our life, that we understand that who God is in our life is something that we can't even really imagine or fathom, then we know that he has this perfect plan in line for us. The Savior will come as he's promised, and his people will be with him and like him forever. Let me encourage you with these words. God is encouraging us to hold tenaciously to the hope, to his hope, the hope we have in God. Hope that doesn't show itself in a way we live is ultimately worthless. Hope that doesn't show itself in the way that we live out our lives is ultimately worthless. And I would also like to add the word hopeless. What good is hope if it doesn't impact our daily life? The writer in Hebrews goes on to talk about in verse 24, the difference that hope can make in our life. So see, the first thing we do is we draw near to God. The second thing that he tells us to do, if I was using the lettuce five, I should have brought like a, a thing of lettuce up here today, right? Like lettuce. Uh, the third thing would be, let us consider how we may comma spur one another. Or let us consider how we may spur one another. Either way. There's kind of two actions there taking place. I love this. In fact, I, I think of a song um, when I was in a high school um, Bible study on Saturday nights. I still remember the guys that sang it. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. It's just cool that God puts those songs because scripture is played out in our everyday life. God reminds us of those things. Also, I didn't have a bass voice back then, so I didn't, I couldn't hit those notes the way they did, but I did remember that we needed to see God in the way that he lives in our lives. Let us consider how we may spur one another. God's purpose for your life is that you'd be moved by hope. That is in you to encourage others to be more loving to be more gracious, to be more Christ-like, to do good deeds, to love. You know, we, we talk about love, and uh, even last night as I was watching the ball drop, there was a commercial right after from Google talking about love. And it, it's so, um, I, 
the world has defined love as something I believe different than what God has defined the world as love to be. Love is not just an emotion, friends, especially in the New Testament, reminded that it's an act of will. We're commanded to love. We love them because he first loved us. Most people's cornerstone there, when they talk about, um, like, what is their mission statement at a church? If you were to come go through South Orange County churches and you were to look up their mission statement, it might be a tagline like this, love God, love others, serve God, serve others, love people. It's all about God and others. Love's not an emotion. It's an act of will. See, love is the root. Our actions, our good works are the fruit Let's write some things down here. Love and good works need to be stirred up. They don't just occur. Love just doesn't occur in us. Even though God gives it to us, he's still asking us to stir it up. And I did, you know, back in the day, even when Tom was on a youth team with me, I'd always ask if my sermons were okay because I knew he was super smart. But I did find some Greek and Hebrew to what what I'm talking about. It says that the Greek word for stirred up in this passage is paroxysm. Let me say that again. Paroxysm. Paroxysm means none other than the word convulsion. Convulsion. This means the word speaks forcefully of the tremendous impact believers can have on each other. We're supposed to stir each other up. When we, uh, it's interesting when we're a fan of a sport team, don't we stir people up to cheer them on? How much more should we be a fanatic of Jesus Christ? like Paul was, like Peter was. One that would, would go with Jesus everywhere. That would stir people up to love the way God tells us to love, to put on our heart glasses, to see people the way Jesus sees them. Love is the root. Good works are the fruit. Love is the root. Good works are the fruit. The fourth thing that we want to learn today, another encouragement, another exhortation to draw us near to God, to reconcile us with our creator this year is this one. This one lies heavy on my heart. And so as I share these things again, remember I'm preaching to my kids. I'm preaching to myself. This is not just to you guys. This is to everyone. And I hope that God's spirit moves through me as I share these things. The fourth one is let us not give up meeting together. Let us not give up meeting together. As a school teacher of 14 years, as a youth pastor of just retired after 10 years, and I also worked somewhere else before, it is so important that your kids are plugged in somewhere to youth ministry, to Bible studies, to things where they are, there's an outlet for them. They're plugged in, but it's not just them. It's you as well. It's important that you model it. It's important that they see that it's a priority. It's important that they see that doing life together is not an option. It's so sad that we even hear this verse, the way it's said, the Greek word for give up means deserted or abandoned. That is why the author is exhorting the Hebrews to gather together. Evidently, some of the believers had stopped attending the worship services of the church See, we have the same problem going on today in South Orange County and not just Orange County, but all over the United States and in the world. We're not adamant enough about our creator. We're not, we're not, 
committed enough to make the time. We're not, it's not as important to us. There's too many other distractions in this world and see Satan is trying to steal the hope and the joy that we have in him. How much more hope and joy do we have when we come to a church, when we're here doing life together as believers? Let me give you some facts to think about. The Greek word for church, does anyone know what it is? Ecclesia. Ecclesia. That's E-C-C-L-E-S-I-A. Do you guys know how many times church was used, the Greek word ecclesia, in just the New Testament? What do you think, Sierra? How many times? Close. 103 times. She said 100. Pretty good guess. 103 times. What is that saying, folks? That maybe it's important? Maybe church is something that's important to us. The Greek word for church, ecclesia, implies the spiritual body of believers. See, in this verse, I did some digging. It actually emphasized specifically the word synagogue. And synagogue, we know, means a local physical gathering of believers. But we know, as we've been told over and over and over, that the church is where people fellowship together. You don't need to be in a building to do it. You just need to be assembling together and not forsaking the Sabbath not forsaking who God is in our lives and making him a priority. In Acts 2, 42 through 47, this is the model of the first century church. That day, about 3,000 took him at his word. They were baptized and were signed up. They committed themselves to the teaching of the apostles, the life together, the common meal, and the prayers. Everyone around them was in awe. All those wonders and signs done through the apostles and all the believers lived in a wonderful harmony, holding everything in common. They sold whatever they owned and pooled their resources so that each person's need was met. They followed a daily discipline of worship in the temple, followed by meals at home. Every meal a celebration, exuberant and joyful as they praised God. People in general liked what they saw. Every day their number grew as God added those who were saved. The first time that I heard about the Acts 242 church was at um, Azusa Pacific University where I attended. And uh, the reason I know about this is because we had a 242 house on campus. And what this was is that each semester, kids could apply and interview to live in this house. And what this house made them do, the restrictions and the guidelines of this was that they would break bread together, that they would worship together, that they would pray together every single day. They would make one time, whether it was breakfast to do it or lunch to do it or night, they would have to get their schedules together and they would have to make it a priority to worship together. See, that's how the first century church was. Everyone broke bread together and they, they communed together. I often joke with Tom and Aaron. I say, why don't we just buy one big house and we can all live in it together? Um, as, as many of you know, we love Tom and Aaron and our girls love them too. And sometimes it's just fun to be together, to do life together. And I know you guys are thinking the same things about close friends in your lives. See, the spirit moves and we, we are better for it when we're together. But you know what's sad? And this is, this is over five or six years ago I got these statistics. But you guys probably know Barna Research, George Barna. He said that 21 to 30-year-olds... 61% of today's young adults, 21 to 30, had been churched at one point during their teen years, whether it was Sunday school growing up or went to a youth group 
or did something with like a wana or connections, but now they're spiritually disengaged. They're not actively attending any form of church, reading the Bible or praying. I remember asking my kids in youth group a couple years ago, I asked them to get a, a little piece of card out. I handed them a card and I said, write down how many times you pray a day. These are kids that grew up in Christian homes. These are kids that went to Stony Brook Christian school that graduated from my class that were hearing the word of God each and every day. And the average was 0.5 to one times a day. Most of the kids wrote zero. They feel disengaged. They feel like God is too distant from them. They feel like it's not relevant. In fact, George Barna went on to say he gave the top 10 reasons. I'm going to give you the top five reasons for the church dropout, not just 21 to 30, but all ages of demographics. The number one reason is that the service is boring. Think about the hearts of those people saying that. Well, it's just boring. The second reason people said that they want to not go to church, church isn't for them, is it's legalistic. It's point the finger. It's, it's heavily weighed on one side instead of the other. It's not given enough grace. It's way more legalistic. I just feel like everyone's pointing the finger at me. The third reason people don't like going to church, and I have a feeling this isn't the young kids. I have a feeling this is the older generation, is saying that there's hypocrisy in the leadership the way that the leaders are, are, are living their lives is hypocritical to what's being taught in the pulpit. Of course, many say it's too political. And the fifth reason is it's just a bunch of self-righteous people that are holier than thou. Is that what close Bible church is? Are we too political? Are we legalistic? Are we self-righteous people? I'm going to encourage you and say, I don't believe we're those people. But that doesn't mean that we couldn't slide into that or that we haven't seen that in other people. See, we need to be a place that's open and warm and accepting and loving. That's who God calls us. He wants us to stir people up toward love and good deeds. Tom always says, once you can get people to love something, they're going to want to help out. They're going to buy into it. I left you a, um, I left you a little thing there to write what you thought. What are other excuses or reasons that you've had heard some of the ones that I listed were no time. I'm too busy or it doesn't really help me. It's not relevant. Um, of course, another one is we're always traveling or I'm working. I think God's calling us to something. He's asking us to make time. In fact, John Wooden did a devotional a long time ago and I'm going to botch how many seconds it is in a day, but it was the most powerful devotion I've ever read because basically what it's saying is we all have the same amount of time in a day. Every single person is on the same page at the start of the day. It's what we fill our time with. And I don't know about you, but every time I leave church, I just feel a little bit more full and just a little bit more like I'm ready to face the outside world. Because God is stirring something up within me and stirring something up within all of you. I'm praying for that. What are the other excuses that you've heard? Excuses that you've made yourself, possibly. 61%, guys. So why is it important to stay in fellowship? Church is supposed to be a community of people whose lives are empowered directed and energized by personal interaction with the word of God. There's four things that a guy by the name of Ken Ham shared in his book. He says, the first thing we need to do is we need to 
Grow spiritually. Men, you've heard this verse before. Women, you probably have heard it as well, but men love this verse. As iron sharpens iron, what? So one man or so one woman sharpens another, right? As iron sharpens iron, so we sharpen one another. It's so we can grow spiritually. The second reason it's important to stay in fellowship is to give and share. We who are strong ought to bear with the fallings of the weak. We who are strong ought to bear with the fallings of the weak. The fallings of the weak, the failings of the weak, the burdens of the weak, those that are stuck in a rut, we need to be there for them. We need to build our neighbors up. If we're not in church, how can we actually help others and know their needs? You know, I think about when we leave today, someone will probably post something on social media about Tom and, and someone will write, what? I didn't even know that. How would they, if they're not in church, to know that our brother is in need or our sister is in need or our families are in need? We need to be here so we can lift one another up, so we can pray for one another. You know, I contemplated when, when Dave called me last night. I said, okay, I know what Tom would do. I kind of went back to what would Neil do in this situation. Should I do a short devotion and then should I just have like a, a laying on of hands of praying for one another? Is God calling us to pray in this new year? I just felt strongly that I needed to preach this message today that someone would get something out of this, that we'd encourage one another. We're here to give. We're here to share. We're here to be here for one another. We're here to grow spiritually. Number three, we're here to worship God. I think about Matt Redman and about how he wrote the song Heart of Worship. Um, He's a worship leader. And for a long time, he felt he and his congregation were just not understanding what it meant to worship God. And so he decided to strip everything up here and start with just his voice a cappella and sing. Get rid of everything and find out where his heart was and where the congregation's heart was. Test the heartbeat, the temperature of the church. And from that, God did some empowering and powerful things. He shares about it. You should look it up. Matt Redman, Heart of Worship. We're here to worship God. We should worship God privately. It's not just here. See, our everyday life is an act of worship to God. We know that from Romans 12, 1 through 2. But God calls us to sing to him, to pray to him, to praise him, to fellowship with fellow Christians. How much better is it to worship with fellow believers than by ourselves? When we sing together, the spirit moves in a different way, right? And finally, and I think this one will will come to some of you who are like, okay, where's he going with this? The fourth and final most important thing of why we need to be in fellowship is so we can enjoy one another. What we do doing life together should be enjoyable. Um, I always tell my kids in class, they're like, man, class is so fun. I go, if it's not fun, I'm not enjoying it. I, I obviously have to be a firm teacher and I have to be fair on things and I have to teach the lessons, but I want these kids to have these memorable moments. I want our congregation to think about things in a way that they've never thought about. I know that's how Tom views his sermons. I know that he wants to reach the audience of everyone out there. I know that worship, I want people to see the spirit moving. And if we can't enjoy it, we don't love it. We shouldn't be doing it. We shouldn't be doing it. As Chris Tomlin reminds us, you and I were made to worship. You and I were called to love. You and I were forgiven and free. We have a need to be in relationship with others. We need to be doing life with other brothers and sisters. See, doing life is not an option. That's your next blank as I wrap up my last point here. 
Doing life is not an option. If we're committing our life to Jesus Christ, it's crucial to be in fellowship. I heard that word a lot when I was a kid. Maybe you've heard it in different things. It's not an option to eat your vegetables and fruit. Uh, It's not an option to uh, not eat dinner with everyone at the dinner table. It's not an option to uh, not go to school, right? There's different things. My parents used to tell me church is not an option. And if they were here today, I would say thank you. Because I was that kid, that punk kid that thought he knew everything, and I'd sit in the back, and I wouldn't pay attention, and I thought I knew everything, just like I know Tom would say the same thing if he was here. He would say, church is supposed to be entertaining. It's not always entertaining. It's a time to grow spiritually, to give and share, to worship God, and yes, at times enjoy, and I hope that that's what we do here at Coast Bible Church. Are we praying for those who've left the church to find their way back into fellowship? Let me ask that again. Are we praying for those who've left the church to find their way back into fellowship? The last and final point exhortation today is let us encourage one another. Let us encourage one another. As I conclude, I want to tell you what exhort means. Exhort means coming alongside and inspiring one another with the truth, inspiring one another with the truth so that you leave here transformed Therefore, we need to find strength and comfort and nourishment and joy and hope in our fellowship with others. Knowing that Christ one day will return, I don't know about you, but that gives me a lot of hope and a lot of joy. See, we're to encourage each other even more to remain faithful to him because of the day that God comes back, the capital day approaching. So which group are you in? Are you in the group that's doing life together, as the blank says? Are you doing life together? Are we trying to make small groups, Sunday morning attendance, Awana, the things that God's put here as ministries, are we trying to make those a priority in our lives? Or have we just filled our day with so many things that we're like, I just don't have time. And guys, I I get it. I'm a, a, a father of two children, two and four years old, a school teacher, a worship pastor, But see, God calls us to do this. And I think to myself, if I wasn't here on staff, would I come to church on a regular basis? I hope that my answer would be yes. I hope that my answer would be, this is where I get filled up. This is not an option for me. This is what my parents have taught me growing up. It's one hour, one and a half hours of our day on Sunday. I just just pray that we won't break fellowship but we will do life together. Are you in the group of doing life together? Are you the kind of person that's like, ah, fellowship, be around people, have to be vulnerable, have to expose myself, have to sing worship, those kind of things. Ah. And you're breaking fellowship because you don't want growth. You definitely don't want accountability. And you're just not sure about this whole thing. I'm just asking you to think about that. And maybe for those of you like, hey, Doug, I'm totally locked in. I'm here. I believe in what God's doing in this place. I'm here because God's called me to be here. I'm remembering the Sabbath. It's a commitment to me. I'm here as much as I can be here. Then you know what you need to be doing today? Praying for those that aren't. Praying for those that just need their way back to Jesus. There's many. There's many. And you know in your own families and friends that people have just forsaken the assembling of togetherness and the fellowship. It starts with us. It's time to avoid the excuses. Church is boring. It's irrelevant. I need a break. I have work. I don't feel good. I don't feel like it. 
Because 30% of all the people who've broken fellowship, who've left the church, the way Barna Research has said it, they don't know if they're actually going to come back or not. This is what I leave you with. That's not a statement of indecision. That's a statement of possibility. It's not just a statement of indecision. Like they're indecisive. In that moment, you need to seize that moment. You need to make the most of every opportunity. You hear someone say, well, I'm not sure if I'm going to come back. Then as Dumb and Dumber says in the, in the movie, when you're saying there's a chance, right? You're saying there's a chance. And God is putting it on my heart. He's putting it on your heart, I hope, to bring people back into the fold. People that need to be here in the herd. People that need to be shepherded. People that need us here at Coast Bible Church to worship him. It starts with you. It starts with us. It starts with you. 30% don't know if they'll come back. 30% don't know. That's not a statement of indecision, friends, but rather a statement of possibility. So I leave you with Ecclesiastes 7.25. I concentrated with all my might, studying and exploring and seeking wisdom. The meaning of life. And I also wanted to identify evil and stupidity foolishness and craziness. As I challenge you, as we go forward in the new year, I ask that you start living by the word instead of pointing the finger. Start living by the word instead of pointing the finger. Pray for those. Pray that God brings people to this church. Coast Bible Church is a special, special place. I pray that we would continue to be inclusive and love on one another that we would encourage one another, that we would stir one another on toward love and good deeds, that we draw near to God, that we hold unswervingly to the hope that he has, and that we would not give up meeting together. Let's pray. Father God, uh, God, I, I just come to you and I just thank you for um, the words in your scripture in Hebrews, God, that just give us points to think about and to apply to our everyday lives, God. I thank you for Coast Bible Church. I thank you for the men and women here from young to old. Lord, I've seen the way you're working in this place. I know, God, that you're going to do incredible things in the new year, God, and I pray that we would have it on our hearts to stir up ourselves, to be almost like in a convulsion, in a way of, ah, I can't contain it, in a way where we can spur one another on toward love and good deeds, that we can encourage people, people that need a place, that here at Coast Bible Church on this hill, people would see you for who you are, God. That people would come in and know that we're family. That people would know that we're a family that that extends grace, that extends Bible, and that extends fellowship. God, we give you this morning, we ask a special prayer on Tom and his family. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.